Welcome to the Pivoting Out of Education podcast, where hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard will share their stories of folks who have left campus-based positions in education and K-12 to leverage their skills in other contexts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average person holds 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 50. Educators, like Jamie and Tom, often enter their careers thinking they will stay in education forever, perhaps because they're trained to think that way, or perhaps it is hard to see other pathways. Both of your hosts pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they want to give back and support others trying to do the same. Thanks for listening in and enjoy today's episode of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Hello and welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Studdard. And we are here today with Sarah Henry, and we're so excited to be talking with her about her unique experiences pivoting out of education-based roles. All right. Sarah, it is so wonderful to have you on our Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. And I really can't wait for folks to hear about your journey. I have loved seeing it evolve over time and just the pathway that you took. So if you can please get started um, by sharing a bit about your background in education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, first, thank you both for the invitation. Um, as soon as I saw the the pivoting out of EDU, I thought, yes, can I can I come can I come on board and and chat with you both? And I'm so excited to uh, to support the project. I think this is such a a powerful way to kind of give voice to the experience of folks who um, have maybe carved out their own uh, their own sort of pathway in higher education. So I'm very, very excited to be here with both of you. And we're all Sun Devils, which is a perfect starting That's point right. for <laughs> perfect, perfect starting point for, for sharing a little bit about my education. Um, so I started in Phoenix, Arizona. I was born and raised in, in Phoenix and uh, went to um, St. Teresa's and then Xavier, which are both private institutions in Phoenix. And then I went to Arizona State University um, as part of the leadership scholarship program. And that was a, a four-year leadership development scholarship program that was a full ride um, to, to Arizona State. And um, I joke with joke with folks that I was sort of an overall over-involved student leader from the time I was about five. I was that that person that was sort of um, always showing up at at the campus to like help my teachers over you know over the summer as they put up like all of the decorations on the boards yeah. and you know all of that. And so it probably is not surprising that I would then end up in uh, higher education, being an over-involved student leader, and eventually uh, seeing that uh, that this was a, a way for me to sort of complement my my educational journey. Um, I was a, like many students, I changed my major a million times. I started as, as a psychology major. I thought that uh, that would be amazing. I loved my social psychology class. And, and then I realized that really to do anything with a, a, a psychology degree, I would need to get my doctorate. And I thought that that was crazy as an 18-year-old to think about getting something like a doctorate, right? So sure enough, I did get one, but that wasn't exactly an easy thing to think about when I was uh, 17 or 18 years old. So I was in psychology for a while. I then interestingly shifted to business 
Um, I had a, I think one of my only, I got two C's in college. One of them was in microeconomics and the other one was in courtship and marriage, which is probably a story for another podcast. Um, Interesting. I know. So I was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know that the business thing is also like the right thing for me, which is also sort of interesting. And so I ended up as a communication major and was just fascinated with, with human communication, have always been fascinated with human communication. And so um, I graduated in 2002, um, moved out of the Arizona heat as quickly as my, my little Honda Accord could take me. Um, and I moved to San Diego, California, um, pretty quickly uh, got a, a entry-level position in a, de- a Dean of Student Affairs office at U- uh, University of California, San Diego, where I worked with college student leadership programs, student organizations, and under the mentorship of the Dean of Students at uh, UC San Diego at one of the undergraduate colleges at that time. And then while I was at UCSD, uh, did my master's work at San Diego State University in post-secondary education, and then went on to the University of San Diego to get my doctorate in leadership studies with an emphasis in higher ed administration. And that I completed in 2010, which really seems like it was just yesterday, but it was 11 years ago. That's, that's when I finished my doctorate too, 2010, ironically. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's like really 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's interesting to me and Sarah, hearing you talk about your story is obviously I knew you as a student leader at Arizona State. Uh, and two things really strike, strike me with that. One, you started your doctorate and finished it before I even started mine, which is, um, I'm a little bit jealous. But the it doesn't other thing matter that, now though, Tom. It's true, all, we're, that's true. All three of us have it. Um, the, the other thing that really struck me is, and and you probably remember this, like when we were in student affairs or, or working in, in higher ed as, as a sort of a, uh, as a whole, we were always on the lookout for those students that might come into student affairs. We might be able to sort of, uh, bring them into the family. And so I remember when you made the decision to go into student affairs and I was so excited for you. And now here, all three of us are outside of student affairs, outside of education, And so that really leads me to like my question, which is, you know, what are you currently doing and and what, what was the impetus for you leaving higher education? Yeah. So this is probably a a longer story. And I think you, you both have um, seen probably snippets of this over time, but I, um, you know, I went into student affairs really, really thinking that my long-term career goal would be to be a vice president of student affairs or maybe the pr- a president of a small campus at some at some point. And I was heavily involved in, in the professional associations and in, in NASPA specifically, and sort of had the beginnings of a, of, of a fairly traditional trajectory. You know, I, I, I worked in a, an entry-level position and then a mid-level position, and then I kind of moved into an associate dean, right? Like I kind of sort of followed, followed the path. And in 2014, no, actually even earlier than that, I guess it would have been the spring of 2011. So I had, or 2012, I had chaired the NASPA Western Regional Conference in San Diego. And about three months later, I found out that my mother had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was at the time up uh, in Northern California at Humboldt State University, which if you know anything about Humboldt, it's very hard to get in and out of, right? And so as we were starting to navigate the cancer journey as a family, I, I was just sort of losing sleep because I wasn't able to get in and out of Humboldt and get to Phoenix quickly enough to kind of see, uh, to see my family. And so I started, a, I did a national job search at that time, ended up moving to another campus with a, an airport that would give me faster exposure to my family. Um, and about eight months into that position, I found out that my dad had also been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So it was about 13 months apart. 
and I was, I was not in a good place. I mean, I, you know, I was sort of already not in a good place because of my mom being ill, then really not in a good place when I found out that my dad was sick. And in sort of in tandem with this, I was in director level position with, you know, eight direct reports. I'm working in student activities. I've got all of our Greek life and all of our club sports, and I've got, you know, leadership programs. I've got grant funded programs. I've got, you know, and it just, I felt like I was getting up at 7 a.m. or earlier, 6 a.m. so I could get to campus at 7 a.m. so I could get some work done before students actually got to campus and before my staff showed up. You know, and, and I think one of the interesting things about student affairs for me was I really embraced the idea of having that sort of open door policy, but the impact of that was that the door was always open and I never got anything done because yeah. <laughs> I was always talking to students or my staff or whatever. And then I would get to five or six o'clock and there would be events in the evenings and I, you know, my emails piling up the entire time. I've got more work getting piled on because of being in meetings. And I just started to feel like I couldn't breathe. You know, I, I, it started to affect my physical health and my mental health. And, you know, I'm very transparent about this publicly and I'm happy to share it now, but my, my drinking behavior w- uh, w- increased as well. I, I, it was like the fastest way for me to manage stress was to just plug into a, a martini at the end of the day or two. Um, and that of course then affected my sleep. And right. So there was just this sort of ongoing cycle of being a, a high functioning professional, but because of how fast paced the work was and how much the volume was, in addition to then navigating the, the news of my parents and everything we were navigating as a family, I didn't really have time for healthy options. And I know that sounds like such a kind of a cop-out, but like, when was I going to fit in time to go to the gym? When was I going to find time? I mean, I, I remember just yeah. going downstairs to Burger King and grabbing yeah. a, you know, a Dr. Pepper and a burger to like <laughs> myself in the middle. And I'm like, I, I like, it's just not something that I would generally do now in, in a period of stress. And so I just saw this sort of culmination over time of, of sort of really kind of unhealthy, unhealthy coping behaviors that were sort of a function of both my parents' situation, the stressors of work. And so I eventually kind of got to a point where I, you know, I, I was just running, running, running in my position. I saw that my parents' health was starting to decline. They had also been trying to take care of my grandmother, who at the time was 90. And, you know, as their health started to go south and my grandmother needed support, I between my brother and me, we just had to make a, a call. And so I stepped down from my um, position at the time, decided to move in with my with my mom and dad. And it was really the first time in my life that I had ever just stopped working. I mean, I had been, like I said, I had been an over-involved student leader since I was like five years old. So I think as a function of my personality, I'm a pretty you know type A, sort of highly ambitious, highly driven person. I had just sort of been going, 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 going as an undergraduate, as a student affairs professional. And then all of a sudden I stopped and I was forced to be present to my life and to my relationship with my parents for the first time ever. And all of a sudden leadership to me became something very different. Leadership wasn't anymore about the title that I held or the amount of money I was making or what institution I might be able to get recruited by or what positions I held as part of professional associations or what awards I maybe would win. And that had been, my whole life had been about thinking about this trajectory of like achievement and accomplishment. And all of a sudden, the only thing I wanted to do was to take care of the people who had brought me into the world and who had been my my biggest supporters, my biggest advocates. And here they were in their early 60s, and they had spent their entire lives working hard, saving what they could, and dealing with their work stress and their 
you know, family stress and all of the things that come with that by also making some pretty unhealthy choices in terms of their food and diet. And here they were in their early sixties, both facing terminal cancer, because this is the impact of, of the American diet on our bodies when we're not careful. Right. And so I just came very sort of face to face with my own mortality in a way. I mean, my, my own sort of the, the, how temporary all of this is, I hate to start the podcast out on such a sour note, but like this was really for me kind of a wake up call to how I was living or not living my own life. And I, and I think I started to feel like I wasn't actually having the impact in students' lives that I actually wanted to have. At least I didn't feel like I was, I just felt like I was in meetings all the time. And I felt like I was just like running to try to keep up. And it was, it just broke my heart. You know, I it just absolutely broke my heart um, because this was a, a profession that I had sort of gone into thinking it would be really empowering and inspiring and uh, nurturing. And the the longer I was in it, the, the less I sort of saw that as my reality. And I think I started to see my future in very different ways. I did, I did start a, a company that was sort of wellness focused, sort of in that time that I was navigating things with my parents. I wasn't able to get that off the ground, but you know, they, they say that when you're navigating hard things in life, you shouldn't make uh, big decisions. And it turns out that that's true. So it's a good thing. I didn't also buy a house or get married or do any number of other things. And it was just a little business that went into the toilet instead of all of these other aspects of my life. But Interestingly, because that first company didn't work out, I started reaching out to some of my colleagues who were in professional associations that I had been a part of, and I offered to help them with the editing and formatting of their dissertations because I had always had this sort of weird, quirky obsession with, with grammar and the mechanics of style and APA. I know that's kind of a, a almost embarrassing thing to admit in a... <laughs> No, because everybody who writes a dissertation needs you. Yes, <laughs> somebody needs to love that. Yes, stuff. <laughs> and I, um, I learned. Uh, I first learned APA when I was I was twelve. My my mom, um, I had a eighth grade English teacher who wanted us to be good consumers of knowledge and wanted us to cite sources appropriately. And so I remember being 12 in eighth grade and I would have, you know, at the time we didn't have databases where we could look these, look up articles and stuff. So I would take my, my pocket full of dimes right into the basement of the library and like take out the books and the journals. And I would make the copies until I ran out of dimes. And then I would have to go home and, you know, sell more cans or whatever we had to do at that time. So, you know, um, to get enough money to, to make copies. And, and I remember my mom saying, you know, I learned MLA when I was a master's of library science student. And so I think it would be useful for me to know APA too, because I'm a librarian and I get lots of questions about it. So why don't we learn APA together, right? Because this is what you do with your 12-year-old daughter. And so that's, that's kind of where it started. And so I knew that I had this in my back pocket as a, as a skill set, but I never, I always thought of it as a very sort of technical and transactional process. And so I never just, I just never thought of it as something that would be bigger than that. And so I started doing academic coaching and editing work really just to sort of make ends meet for a while. The other company hadn't worked out financially. I was not really ready yet to do a national search to look for the next job on campus, next sort of traditional job. And I think the other thing that was going through my mind at that time was this sort of notion in student affairs of sort of moving out to move up. And I was just sick of not having community in one space. I was, I think at that point, especially because my parents were in the, you know, um, getting close to, to uh, dying. I think I, I really had a very strong sense of like, I don't 
want to move to some city with some job where I just don't actually want to live. You know, I want to, I want to actually like live somewhere where I want to live, like a, a city that kind of speaks to me and aligns with my values and where I can meet people who can be part of my community and where, you know, maybe I could date and have, have more than one, you know, one 30 minute <laughs> <laughs> the space of availability to go on a date every week because I'm just trying to squeeze men in between like, you know, student organization meetings to try to actually have a dating life. Hey, so I, I did that. And that's how I met my husband. FYI, yeah. just to FYI. be clear. <laughs> so it is, it is possible. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah. So, so one thing kind of just led to another, I, I started supporting some of my colleagues I, after, so both my parents passed away within about six months of each other. This would have been the summer of 2014 and then January of 2015. Um, and it took about, uh, and I was still taking care of my grandmother and it took about a year and a few months to do all of the sort of like end of life stuff. Right. And it wasn't just end of life stuff for one person. It was like a 40 year marriage. Right. And so I had all of that to sort of un unravel and take care of all of the financial and, and legal matters. And um, so it took about a year to get all of that sort of squared away. And, and when I was done, I just felt like I needed to take a break, you know, mentally, emotionally. And so I um, actually found my, my dad had purchased a, a senior pass to the national parks and I found it in the glove compartment of the car. Um, and I kind of took that as a sign that they, you know, they didn't get to take this trip, right? They, they passed away before they got to take this trip. And so I used that as sort of a sign that it was time to pack up the car, pack up the car and, and kind of take the trip for them. And I, they loved being in Oregon. And so I wanted to drive the coast of Oregon for them sort of on their behalf. And so I spent about six weeks on the road and that was wonderful. And I had a couple of one or two students I was working with at the time. So I would work on, on their dissertations uh, at a cafe or, or in the tent at night. And then, you know, I would find internet somewhere and send it back to them. And, but it, again, it was very casual at that time. I wasn't really thinking of it as being a long-term thing. And, and then I got to Oregon and I quickly realized that June in Oregon does not mean sunshine or camping appropriate weather as it turns out. All. And I, not yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, I legitimately was like, Oh, I'm going to camp in Oregon. It'll be beautiful. Uh, not at all. There was like snow and it's raining. I'm like, I'm not, and now you know why I left Portland. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I went up to Astoria. So I drove the, the coast, got to Astoria. And I was like, you know, it's, this isn't good for sleeping outside. I think I'm going to go to Portland for a couple of days and got to Portland. Of course, it was sunny and beautiful, which is when everybody makes a decision to move there because it's, it's a rational decision when it's sunny. Yes. The two months then, that you get. <laughs> yeah. And it happened to be in July. So it was perfect. perfect. Late June. So I'm like, oh, this is great. It's sunny. This is so beautiful. The trees are all blooming. And I'm like, Portland is totally where I'm you know, meant to be. So I just, for the first time in my life, really sort of followed my heart and just sort of checked in with myself about, you know, where do I want to live? And, and Portland was really sort of pulling at my heartstrings. So, so I found a, a studio apartment and I literally moved in with a, a like a sleeping pad, a sleeping bag, a small little table and a, like a, a LED lantern and my dog. And we, I remember that first night, like sleeping on the floor and being like, okay, well, here we go. We're going to give Portland a try and see what happens. So interestingly, I, I posted the story today because I, it just happened this morning, but I found sort of a, a remnant of that period of time. Um, I had, you know, my, the first business had gone and gone into the toilet. I was not really convinced that editing was like a thing that I wanted to do for a long time. And really, I think I was in such an, a, an emotional place at that time, having lost my parents and sort of wanting to have this space that I thought, you know, I can't think of anything better than working at Whole Foods in the produce department. I was like, that 
Like I freaking love whole foods, right? Like it's just, it feels healthy. And I feel healthier just walking in. I could have just eaten a, I could have just eaten a whole pizza and I walk into whole foods and I like feel like so much healthier. And I, so I was like, that would be kind of a cool place to, you know, to hang out for a while and just kind of have a casual job until I figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And like a, you know, total rookie mistake. I a- applied to Whole Foods via the online portal using my seven page administrator resume and a formal cover letter with a signature. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because that's how you apply to jobs, right? So, like, so there's no, there's no relevant experience. Nobody cares at Whole Foods that I've done anything <laughs> with any like hazing, anything they don't like, no, nobody could care less. So the next day I get this very lovely email that says, yeah, we've, uh, we've looked at your qualifications and we I have moved on to other candidates or whatever. And so, um, so I, you know, my ego whoops. was a little, whoops, my ego was a little bruised. I, um, I go the next day I walk into a, a cafe sort of not knowing where I, I was. And I sat down and I thought, you know, I, I want to maybe give this editing thing a try, but I didn't want it to be a technical or a transactional thing. And so I really, I sat down and I was really reflective about like, what would this look like if I were to do it my way, right? In a way that aligns with my values and, and what 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 is the experience that I want students to have when they're working with me and scholars who are working with me as, as they're um, writing their theses or dissertations or whatever. And so anyway, I wrote, um, I wrote a list of, um, list of adjectives of like what, you know, how I wanted students to feel in, in working with me um, as an academic coach and editor. And, um, and then I just sort of, I looked up and I saw, I didn't even know what coffee shop I was in, but I looked up and I saw the word heart on a, a mug on this like rack of paraphernalia at this coffee shop. And I thought that's like, that's it. Like that's, I want, I want to connect with people's hearts. I want to take care of people's hearts. And um, I would probably feel that way if I was running a plumbing company, because I think that it is, it speaks more to my purpose as a person more than it does like the, the way that I do it. Right. And so I think that this was a way to take my very technical skill set and my passion for academic writing and my passion for writing in general um, with my values as an educator and sort of weave them into a practice that was not at all technical or transactional. I really sort of had to give myself permission to create my own thing for one. And two, I had to give myself permission to walk away from the 15 years that I had spent in higher education in a traditional capacity. So I had been, I had done all the degrees. I had done all the NASPA involvement. I had had the mentors. I had done all the stuff. And I felt this like weight that I was like letting, I was letting everybody else down, you know? And, and I kind of realized that I had been carrying that too. And I needed to start making decisions that were best for me and my life and the way that I was ultimately wanting to sort of make a difference in students' lives. And that I, I could try to carve that out for myself and maybe do things in a little bit of a different way. And so I very quickly went to GoDaddy <laughs> and I looked it up and I'm like, okay, well, let's see, like Heartful Editor. And so I like look it up on Go, and I'm like, it's available and it's available on Facebook and it's available on Twitter and it's available on Instagram. And then all of a sudden I was like, that's the name, you know, I was like so excited. And of course by now it's raining in Portland. So that the glimmer of that had sort of gone away, but I, thankfully I had this new, this new thing. And I was like, okay, okay, we can we can work with this. Like, let's see, let's see what happens. And so fast forward five years, we now have 12 campuses that we support nationally and we have five full-time team members and we have a team of 50 academic coaches and editors. And we work with graduate and doctoral students all over the country on everything from course papers all the way through the final editing and formatting of their dissertations. And we also work with faculty 
uh, scholars as well on manuscripts for publication and book chapters and um, you know all academic uh, manuscripts, CVs, cover letters, resumes, you know, pretty much anything that sort of falls in that academic bucket we support. And so this is not at all what I thought I would be doing with my life, like <laughs> so far, uh, so far from what I thought I would be doing with my life. But I have learned more about myself and about leadership in the last, you know, five years than I probably ever did working, on, you know, in sort of a traditional on-campus role. Um, one, because of the service that came out of me and being there to support my parents. I often told people that I learned more about leadership in that two years than I ever did in a degree program. I got my, my doctorate in leadership studies and I'm still paying that damn thing off. And I learned more for free <laughs> with my parents in two years. I'm like, well, I could have just foregone that entire, entire process, but there was really something about, you know, accessing the heart and really learning to lead from the heart that I think was a part of what I really took out of that experience with my parents um, and my grandmother. And it changed me as a person. I shortly before, I know this is sort of a tangent, but right after I left higher education, because I wanted to be a hundred percent present to my parents, I also decided to quit drinking. And I have been a hundred percent sober since May 5th of 2014. And it is wow. not a coincidence. It is not right. a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that I never went back to drinking. Yeah. Like the fact that I have been out of student affairs and I have also been sober for the exact amount of time. Um, is they're very much related to each other. And I just finally saw this, this window where I could actually put myself first. I could put my health first. I could put my passion first. I could sort of create this life that was really about what was best for me instead of kind of thinking about all of these things that I should be doing, these titles that I needed to try to achieve or this path I needed to stay on because this was the path I had been on. Um, that no longer seemed like the right decision. And so I just sort of said, okay, let's, Let's follow this and just see what happens. And here we are. Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing the story, especially the personal details. I think, you know, that's that's so much of what I think we're trying to get to with this particular podcast. And, you know, I remember following you on Facebook as you were dealing both with uh, the issues of, of, of mom and dad and 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 then the move and 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 thinking, my goodness, Sarah has it put together. And then to hear you sort of talk through sort of the struggles that you went through, it really puts, you know, it it sort of puts a sort of a face on on what we do in student affairs or what we did in student affairs, right? Mm-hmm. Is like we're carrying around this face of we've got it all together, and yet there's so much going on in our in our back life or our yeah. backstory that so many people don't even realize. And you know, I think part of the reason that we're doing this podcast as well is. We heard from so many people that they are burned out. They their mental health is deteriorating because it is a grind. You know, working in higher ed and student affairs. I mean, I remember. You know, you know, I, I worked in orientation, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, to the campus at five a.m. Still at campus at twelve a.m. Back to the campus the next day at five a.m. And there were moments. There were days that I slept in the on-campus residence halls in order to just come back the next day. I think. In fact, I remember when yeah. I worked with Jamie at ASU when we were doing the homecoming parade, she was a resident director and I was like, can I please crash on your couch so that I can be up in the next two hours? And so your story is, I think, going to resonate quite a bit with, with our listeners uh, in terms of not just what you went through to get to where you are now, but the the what you didn't necessarily show as you were going through it to mm-hmm. the people around you um, mm-hmm. and, and to be able to reflect back. That's I, I really appreciate the story and I really appreciate the insights. Agreed. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things we like to, to learn about are what were your strategies for success? And as you were telling your story, I, I was thinking, okay, 
openness. You know, you had a distinct openness to where this path was going to lead you. You've done, you did a lot of self-reflection. And I also think, you know, to what Tom said, it's, it's interesting because your experience was kind of extreme in a lot of ways, right? With Mm -hmm. two parents uh, Mm -hmm. diagnosed with terminal cancer at the same time. But a lot of what you described with regard to how you were feeling in your position, as Tom said, is how a lot Mm -hmm. of people have felt. And And I think a lot of times people just think this is my identity now. Like I'm a student affairs person and this is what it means to do that. Mm And it maybe doesn't, they don't have those extreme things that happen. And so they just stay doing that and stay in that space for a long time. So it's great hearing from folks like you that have made this pivot. And, and to that point, you know, I wonder if you can share, what do you, what do you think are some of your, were some of your keys to success uh, beyond, I know, like the sort of openness of the path, but you've clearly, and I just, I love seeing how successful a heartful editor is because I just think it's such an important uh, resource and support system for folks and love the name as well. And actually love hearing, <laughs> hearing the story about the name, but how, how have you, you know, been successful? What are some things that you really would identify as being like, this was something that was a good choice and this is what keeps me successful. And then what advice would you offer to folks who are who are just thinking about what what is out there for me? Yeah, um, it's a great it's a great question, um, and it you know it, it kind of requires me to sort of think back to some of the kind of critical moments along the way that that kind of shaped my thinking. Um, one you know one experience that I had was when I was in Arizona, and this was after my parents had passed. And I was, you know, had always been sort of drawn to the idea of, of social entrepreneurship in general, right? Either either sort of working in nonprofits or social entrepreneurship and, and the idea that we can use organizations to affect positive social change. And so I enrolled in this, I don't know, it was a one credit or two credit course at ASU on like women in social entrepreneurship. And I remember uh, there being a panel of uh, individuals who were kind of talking about their experience and a lot of the students in the class had questions about like well what what did you like what strategies did you follow like what was your path what did you you know and several of the responses were very like linear like I used this book or I used this strategy and I followed this like map or this plan right and I like felt myself getting kind of like antsy because I hadn't done any of that right and I was like well is that is that why the first business failed because I didn't go through these steps or whatever and (laughs) and thinking about you know and thinking about heartful editor like which was really not even a thing yet but in kind of thinking about next steps like oh do I need to like follow some like very structured business plan in order to be successful And then this woman, a woman of color starts speaking and she kind of like looked at the other presenters and then she looked back at the room and she said, well, I didn't do any of that. She said, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. My, my, every single business decision I've made has been based on my intuition. And I, it was like, like the doors just opened for me. And it was like such a, a freeing feeling to think, you know, if I, if I know who I am, if I know what my values are as a person, if I know how I want to serve the community, if those things are clear, then that's my compass, right? No, no book is going to get me 
to where I need to go in a way that is authentic or in a way where I have congruence between my, my decisions and my values. Right. And I mean, I, I joke about this often, but I, you know, I spent 15 years talking about, you know, the, the social change model and, and talking all, all about congruence. And I, there wasn't a congruent bone in my body, you know, like I was, I was talking a big game, but I wasn't congruent. I was a one dimensional human being with very, you know, I, I, often would say to friends, like, no wonder I, nobody would date me when I was in higher education, because I only had one thing to talk about. I just, I wasn't a, a whole sort of well-rounded human being. Yeah. Um, Sarah, right. And so you just brought the social change model into this podcast. That made me so happy. Yeah. So I, you know, I, but, but the notion of congruence was always the more salient part of that model when I was teaching it. And I think in looking back at it, it was salient to me because I wasn't feeling it, right? I didn't have the alignment. And so that part of the model always like, I could like feel myself getting uncomfortable because I, I knew that I wasn't actually like modeling that in my own life. And that was really like frustrating and, and kind of hard for me as a leader to think about like, well, how can I stand up here and teach these things when I've, I'm so one dimensional and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I'm well and healthy and all of these things. So there was, I think, really something for me that was very powerful in just really taking the time to think about what my values were and how I wanted to sort of align my life to those values in a way where I was able to, to live in alignment and to live in that congruence and to use those values as a compass for decision-making. And so um, I would say that as an organization, now at Heartful Editor, I mean, I use those values for everything. I mean, every single thing we do is based in those values. It guides all of my decision-making from how we invoice our students to how I hire team members to what we put on the website. It doesn't, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's almost easy to make decisions based on intuition when you have values that are that strong as a guiding principle for the work that you do. And so I, I mean, I went years feeling like I was waking up and not feeling that congruence between my values and the work that I did every day. And I never feel that now. I mean, I always feel like, like I've got that congruence and I think that that's a, a pretty powerful feeling. So it's not a, it's not a technical strategy. It's more of sort of an yeah. alignment strategy that for me was really powerful. I think the other thing, and this is more holistic than just like my job, but, or my, the work that I do, but I also wanted to like create my life in a way that meant something to me. I didn't want to have, I, I had no agency. I felt like I had no agency. I felt like my, my entire, like every minute of every day was, was controlled by other people and all the time controlled by other people. I mean, even when I would get to a bar to drink yeah. a martini, I still had my iPad with me with the keyboard so that I could respond to emails. I mean, I was the person sitting in the bar. And again, not sexy for, right? Not sexy for anybody who was at that bar thinking, oh, Sarah Henry looks kind of cute, right? Like I'm sitting there with a martini, like working. Like that's just, that was my life because I was just constantly trying to like keep up. And so I really wanted to kind of think about like what, what do I want my life to look like, right? Like what, what, is, what is this supposed to, to look like for me? And I knew that I wanted time in my day to stay physically active and fit. I wanted to have enough time to think about what foods I was putting in my body. I wanted to have time to connect with my friends and my family. I wanted to have time to date and maybe find a, a partner in my life. And these were all things that were sort of not heartful editor or not work, right? They were all of the things that I felt I had kind of let go of in the 15 years I was in student affairs. That has also been really 
important for me to prior to figure out what my priorities are in terms of how I create a life that works for me and where do I find joy and how do I make joy a part of my day. And I, one thing I wanted to share uh, is that there was this transition between leaving student affairs and starting a heartful editor. And even in like the early parts of Heartful Editor, where I got to the point where I was working 40 hours a week, right? Like consistently working 40 hours a week. And when I wasn't working, I was, I felt this layer of guilt that was so powerful that it was like the most uncomfortable feeling. It's like, I felt like I, if I wasn't working, I wasn't doing enough. And it took me so long to even get to a point where I could take off a weekend day and not feel guilty for actually having fun with other human beings or by myself or whatever, or going to the, I mean, even when I would started working out again, I would feel guilty about going to the gym because I had been so conditioned for 15 years that like the emails were piling up or somebody was waiting on me or whatever the case might be. And I just, and, and it took, I mean, it was like a, a rewiring to like go to the gym or go to a bar class or go to a yoga class and be like, this is my space. Do not, like, no one bother me yep. here. This is my time. Yep. And that was so powerful. And I wanted, so I wanted to work at that and I wanted to create the conditions for me to thrive in this new role that I had as an entrepreneur. Um, and now I, I, you know, go to bar four or five times a week and I spend time with my husband and we have date night and I see my friends and, you know, and so that has been, I think another part of sort of building Heartful Editor is figuring out how do we build an organization that is sustainable financially and sustainable for those of us who do this full time but also sustainable in terms of our health and well-being and making sure that, that we're also building a culture that is supportive of, for many of us, things that we didn't find in, high, in higher education, which is someone who understands that maybe their kid is sick or that somebody has to, you know, you know needs a mental health break and that we're not going to make you feel bad for taking a day off because you've just had enough, right? And you yeah. just need to take some space. And so I've also been very me and the, the other leaders in the organization have been very intentional about creating an organization that where people want to work and where we yeah. feel like we actually can bring our whole selves and where we can actually go to the gym and spend time with our friends and, you know, have enough breathing room in our life to, um, to thrive in our work. Because I know, at least for me, when I got to the point where I was just like running in circles, um, I wasn't good for anybody. I wasn't good for myself. I wasn't good for my family. I wasn't good for my students. I mean, I just was, I just was operating on fumes. Yeah. Um, and so I've been totally. very intent. I've been very intentional about not recreating that culture within our organization. And I think those are, those are probably like three key themes I would say have been sort of the, the keys to us continuing to be successful as an organization. But I mean, really at the, like the core of this, right, is that we also just love working with students. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's, we do all of this to create the conditions where we can bring our full hearts to the work that we do with students and, and help take care of them in this process. And that ultimately is sort of the, the purpose of all of those things that I said is so that we can show up uh, and be our best selves for the, for the people that we serve. And I think that was a lesson that I took away from the time with my parents. I actually, the tattoo on my arm says, um, let it be me. And the, it was from a, my parents' favorite song uh, called Let It Be Me by the Everly Brothers. And the reason I got it tattooed on my arm is that it's a reminder to me that when I take care of myself um, and I create a life that works for me and my health and well-being, that I can show up as a leader and as a, as a servant leader in better ways for the people that I want to serve and the community that I want to support. So it, it, the priority had to shift. And I think I spent most of my life putting myself last. And I just said that I'm going to put myself and my team members first, and then the rest of it will be what it's going to be. And sometimes that means setting boundaries and saying no, and we can't take that on. 
and I can do that now. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing. Right. The setting boundaries piece is definitely something that uh, was hard to do <laughs> when we worked in higher education. And the story of the emails piling up certainly resonated, you know, particularly if you're in a position in student affairs where you feel like you're on call or you feel like you're an administrator. And I know when I was, uh, when I was an assistant dean, I, I always felt like I needed to respond in the moment to those emails because it could be a crisis. It could be something uh, that's piling up um, or it could just be a hundred emails and I didn't want to wake up the next morning to a hundred emails to have to answer before my day got started. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I totally, I, I totally resonate with that. Like I would spend time over the weekends working to keep my email to a point that was reasonable for Monday morning. It was like it's almost an act of self-care to answer emails. Agreed. Because if I didn't, <laughs> you paid for it. it. Would, you paid on for Monday it. Morning. Would that much work? Yes. yes. Yep. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, one important question is, do you train your team on the social change model still? <laughs> why not? No, I no have more. to know why no. not. <laughs> no, no, no. Tom's very disappointed. <laughs> we have four, 400 pages of the AP manual that is, is really the, the critical. Oh, that has to right. take precedent. That I, makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your willingness to share your story. I am sure there, were, there are going to be various components of it that resonates with our listeners and I just love the sort of full circle that your story took you on from uh, your mom um, indoctrinating you into the world <laughs> of APA and citation to now really you in, you know, embodying the idea of heartfulness and all of that, that you're um, doing and, and sharing with your teams and, and students. So thank you again. And if it's okay with you, so we much. would love to put uh, your, your contact information in our uh, show notes so people can read any advice that they have as well. So thank Thank you. you. Well, yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was so good seeing you again after all of these years. Uh, Like I said, still remember you as a, as an undergraduate (laughs) and uh, your, your smile and your excitement has not changed to this day. So thank you so much for being, being on the show and we appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much to both of you. And if you have anything, any follow-up, feel free to, to ask, but I'm happy to, to be on the call with you. And um, I look forward to listening and to being part yeah. of, uh, of this journey with you and, and hearing from and learning from the other, uh, other folks that you have on the call as well. So thanks so thank much. You. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. As always, thank you to our guests for joining us. Additionally, special thanks to our sound editor, John Alexander. We spend one third of our life at work. It should be something we believe in and have a passion for. It's okay if that passion changes. If you are thinking about pivoting out of education or know someone who is, visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com for advice, testimonials, and blog articles. Have advice to share or would like a private consultation? Contact Jamie or Tom via the website or at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com.